You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. Elkhorn, Wisconsin is a town of around 10,000 people. In the late 1980s, the citizens began to have strange encounters with a creature that didn't fit neatly into any of our well-known animal categories. We could say it was a mammal. I mean, it had body hair. But it was the size of a man. It walked upright. Yet it had the snout and ears of a canid. It was, by most accounts, some kind of dog man or wolf man. In this episode, we're going to be talking with filmmaker Seth Breedlove about his new documentary, The Bray Road Beast, which is about the continuing sightings of this strange and darkly magical creature. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. It's October as I record this, and we're finally going to be talking about the Beast of Bray Road. This is the first of what I hope to be at least two episodes, but maybe it's going to turn out to be three, about this particular, peculiar monster. Let's be clear. It's, it's more like a class of monster. Some people would call it a werewolf. Some people would call it a dogman. It, it's hard to really say precisely what it is because the sightings are odd and because the creature doesn't really match with our scientific biological models. If it's a natural animal and not misidentified, then it represents something which seems to have no precedent. It fits more easily into folklore, but the people who've sighted it or encountered it, they don't sound like they're describing a hoax or a, a mundane animal. It sounds more like a creature of the paranormal or the supernatural. Filmmaker Seth Breedlove took on the Beast of Bray Road in his latest Small Town Monsters documentary. And as he investigated, 
He, too, ran into aspects of the stories that simply don't fit with the natural world. A link to Seth's films will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. And his film, much like this interview, is more about storytelling than deep mystery analysis. We'll definitely be digging more into this topic from a critical perspective in our subsequent coverage. Hopefully, that'll include an interview with the author who's most responsible for popularizing the legends and sightings around this topic, Linda Godfrey. Regardless, we'll be looking into dogmen and werewolves further because I think they represent a shift in the field of cryptozoology away from the fangs and fur and back towards the paranormal. And if I'm right about that, I'm curious as to what that means for the field as a whole and what it might indicate about the cultural trends among us monster lovers, even the skeptical ones. But for now, let's get to our interview with Seth Breedlove. I really enjoyed his latest movie, and I think you will too. A link to it and his other films will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk. All right, Seth, um, thanks for joining us on Monster Talk. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I, thank you. I, you you yeah. guys met, didn't you, at Crypto? Yeah, we met, actually, we met twice. We met at CryptoCon a year ago, and then um, this year I, I tried to make a point of actually talking for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first time I met you, I was just buying your stuff. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. It's funny. I sold you, I sold you some DVDs or something and you were like, Hey, we'll, we'll talk. I'd love to have you on the show. And I was like, great. And then you left and I never spoke to you again. And I was like, he must've hated. No, he must've no. despised every film. <laughs> you you wouldn't believe how absurdly weird my life is and how complicated and how, how long it's it takes true. me to get anything done. It's ridiculous. It's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. And also, when you have kids, you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> mm-hmm. he's, he's already seen. <laughs> it is yeah. nuts. I, I, I want to see. You've been, uh, you know, I, this. <laughs> normally we start with something like a bio, but you've been knocking out about two movies a year now since, what, 2015? So, uh, yeah, let's see if you can keep that up. Good well, luck. <laughs> as, a, as a good example, though, of, of how having children uh, affects your life, I was telling Blake that it took me three nights to watch a documentary on the Bray Road Beast. Yes. That's pathetic, isn't it? No, no. I, I, I totally get it. Like, I um, I don't get to watch much anymore. What's nice about mm-hmm. the trips the trips that we've been taking is um, I actually, especially if it's a, a trip where I get to fly, um, I've been catching up on like a lot of the Netflix docs and stuff like that. So like a lot of the content that I've missed out over the last year, I'm, I'm able to catch up on when I travel, but, uh, no, other than, than that, I, I totally get it. I was thinking Karen watching it in three parts. It's like the Peter Jackson approach, right? Just, that's probably how it was best seen is broken into three pieces and watched mm-hmm. the one, one episode of uh, every year for three years, uh, right. and, uh. and you get millions. It'll be great. So yeah, I, I'm I'm down like if that. that if that final part is actually in the equation. I, I'm taking it. Yeah. So, so okay. So Seth, you are a filmmaker, a documentarian, and uh, your films have mostly focused on cryptozoology, from what I've seen, and the communities affected by these monster outbreaks, which obviously is right in our bailiwick. Um, so, and you're also in, involved with the podcast Sasquatch. Uh, and, uh, is there anything else that people need to know about you before we get started chatting? Uh, I'm starting, I'm actually doing a new podcast. It starts on, uh, well, we, we record a bunch of episodes like next week or I guess it's the week after where it's going to be called Monsteropolis. So, mm. so yeah. 
is that like because it's like a big monster city versus the small town monsters? Is- um, you know what? It was more just because we needed a name for a show, and we we wanted to focus on something other than 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 Bigfoot. And we went back and forth on titles for days, and I got to the point where I was just like, grab grab a random name that we had already written down, and like that's what we're going to call it. So that's that's it. That's all. That's all there is to it. Also, I kind of like the idea that this was the show would have sort of an excuse if it's called Monsteropolis to open with this cheesy like nineteen. 19- 30s radio serial intro um so that's that's what we're gonna do but it's gonna be it's like a show about everything that we that mark matsky and i are interested in um and bigfoot as well so it's it's gonna be the run the gamut of subjects it's awesome that we live in this time when the resources to kind of put these things together is available for a pretty small investment and uh like you know, just these creative outlets that just didn't exist 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Oh yeah. Like I, I started, I actually started podcasting well before I, I knew anything about movies. I was doing podcasts as far back as like 2008. So, um, so it's my early on, I mostly talked about, uh, comic books and then slowly got into the paranormal and Bigfoot. So cool. Seth, give our listeners a little background on yourself, if you could tell us a bit about how you got into documentary filmmaking. I've always been a, a film fan, and uh, especially growing up, like I, I loved movies, and, and I was antisocial, um, so I spent most of my time just watching um, movies, and I mean, it was it was really devouring cinema. Um, I had no life as a, as a kid. I was homeschooled, and... Um, you know, like that movies were kind of my friends. So I, I always was enamored with film and I watched sort of every area era of it and learned as much about it as I could. And, and that was what I wanted to be when I was a kid was a, a filmmaker. Um, and then I got older and, and graduated high school and I decided it was an unrealistic uh, career path. So I just kind of kicked around and did any number of odd jobs. And at some point I got into the subject of, uh, you know, I guess it started with sort of general paranormal, um, subjects like ufology and that kind of stuff. And, um, I submitted a, or I put together a book proposal called small town monsters that was going to be focused on rural monster outbreak cases in small communities and kind of like how they impacted those communities. And, and I submitted it to a bunch of, publishers and it was rejected by all of them um and a few months after i had sent out that initial proposal i ran into a couple guys that that happened to have a bunch of filmmaking equipment and i i pitched them the idea at some point about making a movie about one of the subjects that were in my initial book proposal and that movie ended up being minerva monster which was a I think our budget was like well under five hundred dollars. I mean, it was wow. It was made. It was made for next to nothing. Um, actually, both honestly, the first two movies we made, Beast of Whitehall and Minerva Monster, were both probably made for under a thousand. Um, but Minerva was definitely under five hundred. So we we made that movie, and uh, it. I had worked in newspapers for a few years as a freelance reporter at that point, so I had contacts in the local Stark County media here in Ohio. And I kicked, uh, I kicked out a bunch of press releases about the making of the movie. Um, just hoping maybe it would generate some interest and we could actually get an audience together to watch the movie we were making. And, um, it kind of ballooned here in Ohio and became, um, sort of a, a, 
you know, locally, everyone was kind of talking about it over that, um, that entire year, honestly, from January when the first story ran all the way until the movie was released in May, there was pretty consistently talk going on about the movie or the case. And um, it gained so much interest that that we decided to do this premiere in downtown Minerva and, and 1,200 people crowded into downtown to see the movie. And it was it was crazy. And from there, we decided we were going to make another movie uh, called Beast of Whitehall. And we made that um, – Minerva came out in May. We made Beast of Whitehall in uh, September. And um, around October, we had already gone to Falk, Arkansas and begun doing pre-pro on boggy creek monster so blake said i'd kick out two a year i mean that really has been the case since 2015 when we made the first one um so so it's just been kind of a constant endless filmmaking deluge and hopefully i'm starting to grow as a filmmaker um i can see the talent and uh you know skills um, in the rest of the crew, definitely growing as we, we go. But, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing for me right now is making sure that I'm sort of learning different editing techniques and getting better film to film. So it's right. cool that you're talking about that. We, you know, on monster talk, we like to sort of dig in deeper than just the stories, you know, to get behind the scenes a little bit. And God. yeah, <laughs> yeah, the uh, <laughs> but we do want to promote the fact that you have a new movie coming out, which is I think tomorrow, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, this is The Beast of Bray Road, which I got a chance to watch at CryptidCon, um, <laughs> and have enjoyed. And I got to watch over three nights, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, we do want to talk about The Beast of Bray Road a little bit. I also want to see if I can get Linda to come on, Linda Godfrey to come back and talk. She had some really interesting things yeah. that she told me in person that I've never heard in any of her interviews. I'd want to get them on, you know, if I can get some of that stuff out there, it'd be really interesting. But so let's, let's talk make about sure, what, go ahead. Make sure, I'm sorry, make sure when you talk to her that you get her to tell you about there's, there's apparently like a side phenomena of the dog man, um, wherein people wake up in the middle of the night and the dog man's standing in their bedroom. Um, so make sure you get her to talk about that. Cause that's really fascinating. And it's something we didn't get to in our movie. Wow. That's interesting. interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, we'll have to remember that. Sounds like it kind of ties in with sleep paralysis, maybe. Well, yeah. or the Hexam heads. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, that's a, a deep cut. All right. So <laughs> how did you get interested in uh, covering the Beast of Bray Road? Like what, what led you to that one? Because, I mean, I know uh, you, you've covered – I should point out you've covered uh, Mothman and, and several sort of hominid variants uh, – as well as uh, some of the UFO tie-ins uh, with yeah. stuff. Yeah, being so. kept busy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was one, too, where I had actually kind of straight away, stayed away from it. Um, mostly, I've been pretty open about this, which is probably going to upset some some people. But, like, the the idea of, like, an upright walking, you know, uh, the dog slash human, whatever you want to call it, like a werewolf, like biologically makes no sense to, to me. Um, hey, so, that's my line. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so I'd, I'd always stayed away from, from the dog man subject. Cause it just didn't make any sense. And, um, and then Mark Matsky, who co-wrote the movie with me really pushed me to check out her book and he was like, you know, you might think the subject is silly, but you're going to you're going to really enjoy her sort of approach to it, especially on that particular book, uh, The Beast of Ray Road, Tailing Wisconsin's Dogman. Um, and 
so I, I did decide to read it around August of last year. Um, and I absolutely adored her sort of approach to, to it. You know, there was, there was like a little bit of a wink and a jab here and there, and she seemed very objective and, and had a great sense of humor. And just, I, I really loved her writing approach to it. And, um, that was actually what made me want to, uh, make the film. I would say it's, it's like, it, it's equal parts Linda Godfrey and then the Gadara story, the, um, the the sighting that happened at the St. Coletta's Institute back in like 19, 1936 when the groundskeeper saw the uh, werewolf walking off of uh, Indian burial mound muttering the, the word Gadara. Um, those two things kind of equally pushed me to make the film. But it, when Linda agreed to do it, it was, it was like a no-brainer that we were going to tell the story. And then it, it kind of took on a life of its own and, and um, in a way that none of our other movies have where, you know, like we, we thought we were pretty much telling, having a, a sort of like straightforward werewolf uh, movie. Um, and then we interviewed John Fredrickson and he got into all the occult stuff and that kind of changed the entire approach that we were taking to the film. Um, but yeah, that it really all comes back to Linda and, and that's why we made the movie. And I guess we should just start out by asking you too, what is the, what is the beast of Bray road? It's so in, in the late, uh, 80s, early 90s, um, there were a series of sightings of this. Uh, I mean, the best way you can describe it is a werewolf, like a classic um, werewolf. And it was seen on this road called Bray Road, which sits just outside of Elkhorn, Wisconsin. Um, it's a six mile stretch of road, um, farmland, and, you know, a few occasional houses, but mostly farmland and some patchy woods here and there. But, you know, nothing, nothing particularly weird about the road um just just sort of a typical farming road and um these people were seeing this dog man um starting in 1989 and continuing i mean it kind of continues till today but the the height of the sightings sort of tailed off around like 1993 94 somewhere in there um but but uh, any number of people reported seeing this upright walking canid creature on the road with sort of um you know, yellowish or orangish eyes in the movie. They're, they're bright red, partially because I had just seen uh, John Carpenter's The Fog. And I really like that. Look. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like that look. Uh, so, so yeah, the, so um, these right. sightings sort of took over the town of Elkhorn, Wisconsin. And, um, you know, it hit the public eye when, uh, I believe inside edition covered it later on Fox news covered it. There was, there was a bunch of stories, um, you know, that, that were done about this in major media and it became, uh, I guess a somewhat popular story. It's funny if you go to Elkhorn today, no one knows what you're talking about really, but, um, mm. for a short period of time, it was, it was very well known. And, and I would say that's sort of the story. I know there's the Michigan dog man stuff, but I really credit the the beast of bray road for good or for evil uh with kicking off the the dog man uh as as a sort of pop culture figure uh which it kind of is today um so yeah that's the the movie kind of takes you through the entire history of of elkhorn wisconsin and its relationship with the the beast of bray road as well as like a larger look at the the werewolf phenomenon globally um and then it kind of comes back to elkhorn and shows you where things are going uh with the subject today 
I just want to throw out there that you mentioned the fog. There's a 4K remastered release of that coming back to theaters. I guess to promote I know. The, the 4K. I know, and I just I just bought the beautiful like Steelbook. I just bought the Steelbook edition, but I didn't realize there was this 4K remastered cut coming out on Blu-ray too. So now I'm gonna have to buy that as well. But yeah. It's a great, fantastic movie, and I've just discovered it in the last year or two. Oh, really? Oh, so it's yeah. Got, it's uh, one of the two big John Houseman ghost movies. There's that one and a ghost story. So good mm-hmm. stuff, good stuff. So if the, the first sighting dates back to the 1930s, but then there wasn't a rash of sightings until the 1980s and through to the, the 1990s, why do you think that there was such a long hiatus between these initial the initial sighting and and then the rash of sightings. Well, what's kind of cool actually is that um, there are sightings in during the seventies. Um, I'm not I'm not aware of any in the sixties, but there are sightings that Linda's come across um, from the seventies. And then more recently, someone reported um, a sighting on Bray Road that would have taken place in the early eighties. So it's it might be that people just weren't reporting what they were seeing. Um, or, or it could be that, you know, due to the, the sort of, uh, attention being put on the subject, you know, all of a sudden people are, are kind of calling in with their, their own version of the story. People love to be a part of these stories and, um, you always have to be very careful of that as well. You know, the thing about the Beast of Bray Road that I've, I really like as well as a subject is that there are, there are a lot of like rational, um, sort of what people would consider mundane explanations for what could be going on you know you've got like the bear with mange thing you've also got the the fact that there are large wolves and especially now i believe when i was there i found out that wolves are sort of starting to repopulate uh in wisconsin so you know that could go back to the you know like maybe that was something that people weren't used to seeing in 89 you know and and 91 92 93 so they were just seeing an, a normal wolf um but there it does seem to me that there are that there are sightings that they just are getting reported now uh instead of back then and and that makes sense to to a certain extent especially because it really does seem like that area uh bristles at this particular subject matter i don't know why but elkhorn doesn't want anything to do with the beast of bray road so they're not selling the t-shirts anymore then there's there is there's nothing in town period um and i'm not exaggerating like we we actually went in there's there's one local sort of gift store in downtown elkhorn we went in um thinking you know they would have either t-shirt or like at least linda's books they had nothing there's nothing Mm. There's a there's a bar, although we never found it. Uh, there's a local bar that has the Silver Bullet special, and then somewhere nice. further outside of Elkhorn, there's a brewery that has a a Beast of Bray Road, you know, beer. But that's that's far outside. Of t- I think it's it's in a town like 45 minutes away. So it's just mm-hmm. I don't know why it is, but they don't want anything to do with it. In our film, there's a quote from one of the Bray. Uh, from one of the actual Bray family, and he said that that he doesn't think there's any commercial value to it. Um, well, so not, I don't, not I don't if they're going to be like that. But <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. A lot of small towns really capitalize on any local law, so that's very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, it's it's more than likely it's because they're all Satanists and they just don't want uh, people. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> this is this is going to be this is going to be my the the thing that haunts us as a, as a as a production company is that like I can just uh, someday I'm going to go back to uh, to Wisconsin and like some poor. You know, Elkhorn locals going to come up and be like, "Your movie's the one where you said everyone in town was a Satanist," and and I'm going to have to explain <laughs> that it wasn't me. I didn't say it. It wasn't me, but it did help my film become an occult classic. That's all that matters. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so. Uh, yeah. One of the things I'm wondering now, now I have to go back and look and see these, these, these sightings started in the early 1980s and I don't think I'd made this connection before. Right. Um, but it, one of the things I've talked about on the show quite a few times is the sort of relationship between certain pop culture movies and then people spotting monsters very similar to those. And so I've started calling some of these monsters scripteds. Because they they seem to pop up really in close correlation like that, and I was wondering because 1981 was the big year for werewolves. That was uh, the Howling and a, an American Werewolf in London, and uh, that was uh, just it was a great year for for anything werewolf related. So I have to go see if those have any any kind of correlation. Correlation does not prove causation, but yeah, right. Something That's to, interesting. Something tonight. to take a look at. Well, I'd be curious, especially about like 89 or 91. Um, since that's kind of like, those are the big two years as far as like the, the burst in popularity, I would be curious to know like what was coming out at that time. Yeah. Thinking mm -hmm. about this, when, how do you approach a project when you're thinking about this from like a filmmaking or storytelling perspective? Do you go in with a narrative and try to piece it together with interviews or do you get the interviews and then edit it until a narrative emerges or is there some other approach? How does that work? We, we've always put together sort of a loose idea for how the film's going to go, and then it never goes that way, ever. Um, <laughs> there, there was, like, like originally the Flatwoods monster was supposed, supposed to be this sort of, like, Rashomon style. Like, you were going to see this, the Flatwoods monster story told three different ways, back to back to back. Um, and there's actually a very early cut of the movie where that's the way the story is told. But it made no sense. Like, without... Just it didn't make any sense to see it that way, and I ended up recutting it. So, so there's always a, a sort of like loose um, version of the story put together, and then it changes drastically once we get into the actual edit of the film. With this one, the the occult angle and um, even the entire style of the movie changed a lot after we had shot. Our, our main interviews, especially the John Fredrickson interview. Like I said, like John really did change sort of the direction of the entire film. Um, originally, it was all going to have this very um, hammer horror vibe to it instead of I, – I feel now like it has much more of like a modern day um, style to it. Like I don't, I don't know – what to compare the editing to, but I do know that it, it isn't edited the way I edit other movies. It's got a lot of like quick cuts and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so the short answer is there's an outline and then it never gets followed ever. Um, the one case, the one case where the outline sort of did get followed would be Boggy Creek Monster. And even that changed sort of on the fly. So um, I'm not great at, at following an outline or a script or anything like that. And, and even like our narration gets written during the edit. So we're, we're, we're actually, you know, editing the movie and then narrating on the fly. 
So you mentioned that uh, you were influenced by Hammer, at least when you were originally planning it. I, I thought that the the actual literal intro, the the sort of the mm-hmm. CGI stuff, felt very yep. along those lines. Uh, yeah, but it it would be hard to pull off a documentary in a Hammer style, I think, because you know, getting people to wear the the old dresses and the bodice, you know, exposed that sort of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can you could you could definitely see. Um, putting john frederickson in kind of a, a you know like a dress a low-cut dress no but yeah. I mean, like the, the 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 uh the film the film still there's some there's some of those aspects to it i think like you said the intro still has it um and then i think the other thing is the actual interviews the way we uh, shot the interviews was is is very stylized compared to how we normally approach interviews. The backgrounds are all like made up to look like they're sitting in some sort of darkened chamber or something like that. And uh, down to like we have candles in the background, the whole nine yards. Like it's it's supposed to be very old school. Um, it was good. Let me and- give you. A, I'm gonna throw you a compliment mm-hmm. that you that I don't know uh, our listeners should get. There's been a lot of uh, in the paranormal world, a lot of. Uh, buzz around the uh, skinwalker ranch movie right hunt for the hunt, hunt for, for the, the skinwalkers skinwalker. god yeah but i want my two hours back oh my god it was boring <laughs> jesus okay <laughs> your movie is so much better so it's crazy because we've been talking all day about about that through text um that movie's gotten a ton of play um and you you are not the first person to make that claim. In fact, you're like probably the dozenth person in the last week yeah, that it, said something to me about this that. This is the difference between you know, you've heard that phrase nothing burger. That mm-hmm. that's a giant nothing burger. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I even though uh what you've got here is, you know, some some of the stuff is digitally recreated, you know, but you've mm-hmm. got you've got these interviews with witnesses that felt significantly more authentic than anything in that in that other film. So, yeah. well, one thing too, like one thing about the way Jeremy's movie, I mean, Jeremy's movies are supposed to be investigative, so there there's a certain aspect of that that is going to put the onus on the filmmaker to present something that people haven't seen. Um, whereas I don't feel like our movies are necessarily claiming to be an investigative look at these subjects. It's more just a retelling of yes, hist- a- historical events through the eyes yeah, of, yeah. of people who have either played a part in the story or if who, who have documented the story to begin with. So it didn't feel like you were making a claim. It felt like you were telling mm-hmm. a story, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, for, for my, you know, like I'm doing on, on the, uh, on the trail of Bigfoot, which I'm in the middle of editing along with everything else I'm doing, that'll be a little bit more of like an investigative look. And it's told in a first person perspective from my point of view, um, as I've been filming that over the last year. And it's kind of like my perspective on the entire Bigfoot subject as a whole. So that'll be a little bit more of like that investigative, like verite style documentary. He cool. does. I, I, I'll say like Jeremy's a, a great, editor and, and storyteller I, I'll, I'll say like i at least appreciate his style and everything oh he's not incompetent but he mm-hmm. he, he he okay I, I shouldn't this is not about his movie and i, I we haven't covered skinwalker ranch <laughs> on the show but boy howdy have i looked into it uh, <laughs> and there's a reason we haven't covered it and it's because there's not much to cover there's 20 years of investigation, a book, and now a movie, and lots and lots of interviews wherein literally nothing tangible or demonstrable is ever presented. So, yeah. But we probably yeah. should cover it at some point. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because I actually feel like I don't know anything about that story. And I've listened to – like my knowledge of it at all comes from Astonishing Legends and from Jeremy's movie. And um, I'm still kind of left with uh, an uncertainty as to what is the actual like sort of claim as to what activity is taking place. I don't quite understand it. Well, I don't. I don't want to like derail this conversation to go into that, but I. I it's definitely something we can. <laughs> We're gonna have to cover it. Yeah, yeah, we will cover it, and you know, but I, and, and 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 Astonishing Legends did a great job of covering the stories, and they took it kind of the same way you did. They repeated what was claimed without you know mm-hmm. making a lot of uh, conclusions about it, and they still found it very creepy. I don't find it creepy because. I've gotten to the point in my life where I need something a little bit more substantial than here's what I saw, but we couldn't film. And here's what I saw, but we couldn't record. You know, at some point, I need something substantial beyond that if you want me to believe. If you want me to listen to your scary story, that's entirely different. I'm okay with that. If if something weird happened to you, great. I mean, it's not great, but I mean, I'm glad you survived (laughs) it to tell the story. (laughs) But but if if you're wanting to tell me this weird story and now you want me to believe it too, or or have my tax dollars go towards helping to investigate, uh, I need something a little more chunky. So that's all. Sure. Nobody's asked me for tax dollars to go to support this Bray Road <laughs> research, you know. Am I willing yeah, to pay for a, a streaming video or a DVD? Absolutely. You know, yeah, and did I enjoy it. what I consumed? Absolutely. So, okay. uh, yeah, glad to have you on. And let's get off that terrible Skinwalker topic. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get back into it. And we will. Of, um, and apparently I have opinions I didn't realize were so emotional. Okay. Passionate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, – like just surviving these experiences that I mean, um, with regards to the beast. Um, can you tell us a little bit, Seth, about some of the experiences that people had in uh, encountering this beast? Were there any, was anyone injured or did anyone die? Did anything happen along those lines? So um, the two sort of like two, two of the very popular initial stories were, were um, Doris Gibson's and Tom Brick's uh, Doris uh, was was actually she would have been the second sort of known witness. There were other reports, but the for some reason these three Doris, uh, Lori Andrezi, and Tom Brichter are always kind of you know shuffled out as like these are the three that brought everything to the forefront, and we did the exact same thing. So I don't know why I'm talking about it. Like it's it's silly to do that, but um, they the, uh, Doris was was driving i think it was halloween uh night actually she was driving she she was she was driving to or from home one night on halloween actually halloween night and she <clears throat> it felt like she had, she had run over something that was in the middle of the road um she stopped her car she got out to check cuz she was afraid it was like a dog or something and she uh saw this large upright werewolf sort of standing in the in the middle of the road and it actually uh chased after her she she jumped back in her car and took off and supposedly as it as it caught her car it it sort of raked its claws down the the, the trunk of her car uh and left claw marks i believe there are photos of that in linda's book they're not in our film unfortunately um but she she really was terrified by what she'd seen and tried to make sense of it. Today, she will have nothing to do with the story due to sort of the ridicule factor. Um, Tom Tom Brichta is a different story. Tom um, 
has claimed a couple of encounters actually, but, but it's sort of like he added the second one later. And I've talked to some people who, who uh, tend to disbelieve some of the, the stuff he added to the, to the, to the initial story later. Um, but he, he also was driving and supposedly this, this sort of clawed arm came out of the fog uh, as he was driving one night down Bray road and, and sort of grabbed uh, at his car and actually raked its claws down the side of his car and uh, t- tore off like a, st- a pin striping on his car. Um, both of those sightings are sort of the, the you know the big ones where there were some sort of physical um, remains of of something you know sort of attacking their in both cases it was their vehicle. Uh, for Lori and Dreezy, she was the it would have technically been the first sighting. She's considered the first sighting of the Beast of Bray Road. Um, she was driving home from work. She saw this uh, creature sitting on the side of the road eating uh, some type of roadkill. Uh, in our film, the roadkill was a coonskin cap uh, full of um, fake blood and pantyhose, so that was fun. So it but, was um, slightly <laughs> more uh, compelling than the Georgia Bigfoot. What? Yeah, <laughs> slightly. Um, so she she uh, she she saw this thing eating eating roadkill. Uh, she she pulled up alongside it. It looked up at her and uh, caught her eye for a moment, as if she couldn't she couldn't quite move. She ended up taking off. Uh, peeling out and, and taking off. And later um, she claimed that what she looked at was like looking at the devil himself, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I, and I've always wondered if that was, you know, like an, an element to that description that was added after the things that sort of came to her attention through John Fredrickson, or, you know, if that was actually her initial uh, reaction to what she had seen. But I mean, uh, you know, people that see Dogman, they're they're typically like a, a kind of violent encounter. Either uh, at least the ones that we saw. You know, like it it doesn't seem like it's a very happy sort of creature. Um, it's not. You know, like Bigfoot encounters tend to be. You know, someone just sees something crossing a road or or going across the creek or you know whatever. It's not typically running at you and trying to attack your car and you know like eating raccoons on the side of the road and doesn't typically look like the devil. And that's one of the interesting things about, you know, the the dog man. So many of these stories tend to be sort of of a violent nature. Um, So that's something that sets it apart from, you know, the Bigfoot subject as a whole as well, which I find very interesting. Although I, Linda Godfrey, when, when I was talking to her at CryptoCon, she, she kind of like leaned in and said, Although, you know, she she's seen Bigfoot and it's not necessarily any less dangerous than Dogman. In fact, she she described some things that were really kind of she made it she made me think that she felt like whatever she experienced was more malicious than most of the Bigfoot sightings I've heard of. So I, I'm really, really interested in talking to her about that. But these mm. uh, these werewolf stories uh, or well, this. If Dogman, well, no one's really reported it changing from one form to another, though. It's just, it looks like, uh, almost like a, a Bernie Wrightson drawing of a wolf man, you know, kind of upright. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, there, there actually is someone we talked to who, we interviewed someone who told us a story about seeing what they felt was some sort of shapeshifter, um, that they felt was, um, you know, like a, a, a man that had 
turned into or was turning into a wolf um and she believed this because it it as they were driving by it's his nose sort of started ex, um how did she put it like extending like it was turning as she was seeing it was he lying? And it opened its mouth and it had yeah. two <laughs> <Pinocchio>. <laughs> No, I mean to be to be, yeah. I can't go, I can't go into it. I have to tell you about it sometime when we're together because uh, there's there's some other things that were going on there that I figured out after the fact. But she like th- that was the only person I've spoken to where uh, they had felt that they had seen some sort of shapeshifter. Did, did you feel and, like the stories like other? I guess what I was getting at was other than well, this is an exception because I don't know this story of it, but. Other than that, were there any other things that made it feel like it was consistent with werewolf lore, or was it mostly yes. it's, okay? What, what else did we? I mean, one of, one, of, one of the weird things about it to me is that the the the, the reports are all of a of a really similar creature. Um, it doesn't it doesn't change drastically from one report to the next until you get up up till today, where you've suddenly got you know people claiming that they're having encounters with entire you know. Uh, Packs of these things and stuff like that, but the the initial Elkhorn, Wisconsin, Beastaberry Road sightings, and and the nineteen thirty six Saint Coletta's uh, encounter, they're they're all of a similar creature. I mean, down to down to the color of the fur and everything. You know, it's kind of this this grayish black. Uh, sometimes there's a brownish hue to it, but I mean, they're they're all describing something that sounds almost identical, and that's very very unusual. Like even the height, it's not. People weren't reporting some some huge, you know, nine foot, ten foot tall creature. They were all sort of saying, you know, six, six and a half, seven feet tops. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. And this is a long period for people to be having these sightings from the 1930s through to today. So do you think that there's only one beast or do you think that there could be several things going on here? Uh, I mean, it, it seems like people are reporting the same thing. As to what they're actually seeing, I, I, I don't really know. And this is one of those situations where when you get into like the occult stuff, it kind of throws another wrench in the works as to you know what what you might believe was actually happening there. Um, 
you know, like there, there's the, the typical response to the fact that Doris's encounter happened on Halloween is that it was probably a kid in a werewolf mask, you know, and, and I mean, that's entirely possible. I personally wouldn't want to be on Bray Road at night wearing a werewolf mask. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, yeah, I would think you're you're just as likely to have one of the guys driving around in a pickup truck aim his truck at you as you are, <laughs> like, scare someone. It just doesn't. And then you've got so many farmers around there that are kind of like they, they don't want kids messing around their farms. And they're probably armed. Um, you know, like when we were there, we heard guns going off the entire time actually in fact the uh, that's a typical sort of thing that happens to us when we're filming outdoor interviews is there's always like rampant gunfire going off <laughs> somewhere nearby so like uh there's a reason lee hample's interview was shot in his his barn was because there was gunfire outside and it was just too loud for us to really muffle it um so yeah i i, I don't know how much i buy into the hoax um, explanation for all the sightings, but it definitely could account for some of them. Yeah. It, it's always challenging. Uh, I think, especially for people who want to look for a scientific explanation, you, it's rare that you get a outbreak of these kind of stories where a single, uh, explanation will actually account for all the stories. Uh, there's, right. there's usually so many varieties of, of in variations. Um, but that being said, I, okay. It's been a, a few weeks since I watched the film, uh, I, I tried to rewatch it. I've saw I've seen the first half three times now, and I've seen the whole film once. I, I mentioned that because my question is: I don't remember you coming to any particular conclusions about what was going on. I, I felt like you told the stories without actually throwing theories at that. It, am I misremembering? Or, or no, that's yeah, that's kind of that's kind of our thing. Is is uh, I think on this one we actually presented more options for the audience to kind of like try to piece it together for themselves. But our thing isn't really to try to solve the mystery for people either. Um, because in most of these cases, you're not going to, it's like you said, there's too many. I really feel like with almost every story we've covered that there's multiple, uh, things at play. It isn't, it isn't just like misidentification or hoaxes. It's kind of a, a whole mess of different things that are going on that are, that are causing these incidents um with with bray road you know we sort of presented the fact that that there are these people that believe that there is an unidentified species of of uh sort of i guess dog man that roams the the americas and um we presented the idea that that this subject uh goes back pretty far i mean all the way to you know, the, the, the beast of Jevedon story, um, and further back to Greek mythology. I mean, if you want to, if you want to sort of look at it as like a spiritual or mythological being, it's there, there's, there's evidence that people have always sort of thought they were there. Um, Oh, that's true. You do actually start out going, uh, uh, with the story of Lycan and the Greeks. Yeah. 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 And that was something we'd always planned on doing. So like that is part of, at least the movie didn't change that drastically in terms of the opening. That was always the plan, uh, from, from the very first time we had decided this was going to be our next movie, that it would open with that, you know, the very first sort of werewolf myth opening the movie. And you've got Lyle Um, Blackburn doing the narration. I I think that there are some animal based theories that are out there about it being a wolf or a coy wolf or a wild dog. Yeah, in so many of the um, underreported sightings that took place, especially some of the reports that were in John Fredrickson's werewolf file, really were 
you know, sort of uh, a quadruped, some sort of quadruped rather than the the classic werewolf type creature. A lot of those reports were just of abnormally massive wolves. Um, you know, it's just that it was all being reported around the same time. So, so that is interesting, and it does lead me to believe that at least some of the reports were probably of like koi wolves or something like that. Yeah, and you know, w- wolves. Everybody has this sort of mental picture of what they see on TV of like you know timber wolves, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of variation. Uh, uh, there was a really shaggy wolf that was shot fairly recently, and the internet went nuts talking about it being a werewolf for all kinds of other things. And it was just a wolf. It's just that within the species of wolf, there's a lot of variations in what they look like. And if they have mange and they're not as hairy or if they have like a, a particularly shaggy coat, this can lead to people's, you know, seeing something they don't understand. So, right. But, uh, yeah. So the, they're, I, I do, I actually really appreciate those, those early, you know, the quadruped sightings is just that they weren't as, I guess, romantic as the, uh, um, you know, the, the classic werewolf reports. And that's sort of those classic werewolf reports are the ones that I guess everyone thinks about when they think of the beast of Bray road. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned the dog man and that's mm-hmm. not covered extensively in the movie. Like the, the, not the Michigan one. I mean, Right, but but the uh... it's not yeah it's not covered at all the Michigan one we didn't even really get into I wish we had that was something you know that probably could have made it in there but I'm also very conscious of our run times and sure. what a general audience will sit through Did you know that the uh, werewolf stories in Michigan date back into the 1700s Yeah, that's that's kind of what I mean is like the the Michigan stuff and like the Defiance Ohio stories like that was all. Those were all originally supposed to be in the film. Um, it's just I didn't feel like just giving them a twenty-second mention or whatever was really going to do them justice. And and it's something that I could see us maybe covering at some point. Down well, the you road. made a good choice from a uh, from a, a, a brand perspective because mm-hmm. you stuck with one small town monster in one small town. And if you start getting nationwide, it kind of dilutes the idea of small town, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we can we, unless it's part of the original. Plan. I mean, Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, uh, which was the movie we made before Flatwoods Monster, kind of runs the gamut of these towns in Pennsylvania. Um, but it was it was kind of you know that was baked into the film from the very beginning, so we knew what we were doing. But yeah, you can get it can get a little weird if you just start you know throwing in town after town and monster after monster. Just speaking of small towns, um, it seems like your filmmaking career has been focused on small communities which are affected by monster outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So why does this seem to be such a thing? Why does this – I won't say it's necessarily common, but why does it seem to be something that seems to happen around the, the U.S.? I don't know if it happens – uh, as much in other countries, but um, I, th- why I think it does. Thing? Like I think I think it's a global thing. Like um, you know, like I, I our poster artist Sam Sheeran was telling me about a, a a local monster that was kind of where he grew up uh, in the United Kingdom, and and like we had a whole discussion about that idea that this wasn't just like a, an American or United States phenomenon. It's kind of all over the the world it's it's kind of a thing but um you know like it goes in america it goes as far back as towns have have been sort of springing up there's always these local stories here in ohio my favorite 
Um, and I love the fact that I get to talk about this because I never do, but there, there, in Ohio in the 1930s, there was, there's a town up near Sandusky, Ohio called Norwalk. Um, and in the, in the 1930s, there was this rash of sightings of what they called the Norwalk ape. And, uh, I actually have a photo that was on, on the front page in the newspaper in 1932 of like an armed posse with pitchforks and shotguns and, and torches and the whole nine yards that went out looking f- for the ape. A riot is an ugly thing. And I think that it is just about time that we had one. So it's, it's always been a thing. Uh, as, as far as I can tell, uh, as long as there's been towns in the, in the U S for, for there to be like a local legend that springs up a local monster. And then you kind of get the classic Frankenstein, you know, like mob of, of locals going out to, to kill the, the beast. And I don't know why that is. And I also don't know why these stories spring up when they do and inevitably die off after a very short period of time unless it's just simply that people find other things to sort of you know keep their their curiosity or or whatever i mean it's always been a thing and hopefully it never goes away because it it is it's my favorite aspect of all this and it always has been like how these sightings can become local legends and how they influence the communities where they take place or don't influence the communities where they take place kind of like with the Minerva monster or the, uh, beast of Bray road where the town kind of wants to forget about it. And, and inevitably I believe if that community does want to forget about it, um, it will sort of inevitably die on the vine as it were. Like it's not going to, it's not going to, if it's not being sort of celebrated locally, um, maybe it's a little different for the Beast of Bray Road because it's sort of a nationally recognized story now. But for something like the Minerva Monster, that story had pretty much died off when I came to it because the town didn't want anything to do with it anymore. So kids didn't know about the the Minerva Monster. Um, you know, like even some of the people that grew up in the town had no idea that it ever happened there. And to me, that's actually like a shame because I, I do think these stories um, are are a piece of the history of those communities, just like any other piece of history, you know, that influenced that community. And I think they have, uh, every right to be, you know, sort of documented and shared generation, generation, whether you believe there was an, an upright walking Bigfoot like creature in the woods behind the Caton's home in Minerva or not. That reminds me of, uh, the, uh, there's, there's a town in Kansas called Stull, Kansas, which mm-hmm. is supposed to have a gate to hell in it in the graveyard, <laughs> and uh, I, I when I was went out to Kansas on business, you know, like all paranormal investigators, I tried to find what was the local story, and I, I went out to to stall to to take a look around, and I talked to um, a sheriff there who told me about what a nightmare that the folklore around that uh, hell mouth sort of uh, story has caused the town. Because the story is that like Satan appears like on Halloween night at midnight. And so they just had this endless spate of people coming at like these crazy drunken college kids coming out to this little town where there's really not much going on and invading the graveyard and doing damage. Because when nothing happened, they would be out there drinking beer, waiting for Satan to show up. And ultimately they started like, you know, knocking over or even stealing tombstones from, you know, which. Uh 
that's those are like the family markers for local people whose families still live there, you know, and yeah. uh, desecrating uh, th- that sort of sacred space of family memory. And <laughs> it's like uh, they can't get rid of the story. They try. They you know they they you know close off the cemetery and then things like. The, the the TV show Supernatural did an episode where it's supposed to be taking place there. Just you know, invigorates at a nationwide level the idea that the legend's true. So yeah, it's 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 really tricky because you know when a community doesn't want to have that uh, that story that legend identified with them, it, it's got to be tough to to sort of uh, balance the fact that the story exists and deserves to be told with the. Uh, the the care to be taken with the, the thoughts and feelings of the people who still live there in the community. Yeah, definitely. It's it's and it's always going to those local legends are always going to rub some people the wrong way. Like the the Mothman story is the perfect example because even though Point Pleasant has found a way to to capitalize on the Mothman legend, um, and and it's a big you know, huge boon to their local economy. There are people in that community who hate the fact that that is celebrated at all. Um, we actually had a, a lady approach our table at the Mothman festival and tell us that all of our movies were BS. <laughs> uh, and she's apparently like a local, you know, like a point pleasant local. She just walked up and said, this is all BS. And, uh, we just laughed. We actually laughed pretty hard when she walked away. But I mean like that, you know, like there, there's always going to be people that that it sort of rubs the wrong way, and and like in the in the case of the Catons, um, you know, like I totally think the Minerva Monster case should should be sort of recognized by the town, and I think there should be some sort of display at the historical society and, and all that stuff. What I don't think is that people should drive up to the Catons' house and try to see the monster, you know, like in the right. woods behind their house. And unfortunately, when that that typically is what ends up happening, like people people do stuff like that. So it is, it is sort of a side effect of the whole thing, I guess. I think uh, sometimes too, when a town just kind of closes ranks and doesn't want to talk about it, people think, Oh, there's a cover up that they know more. And- <laughs> it's oh, yeah. true. It's, I- yeah. 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 So I, I, I've been corresponding with one of our listeners about um, a town with a secret, which is it, it's very, it's a, uh, it's resonates. Uh, that question resonates. So, I, I, I wanted to talk about the FX work that you have in your movies. It, it, it looks really good. Are, are do you have somebody on your team that's doing the special effects? Or are you subbing that out, or how does that work? Yeah, uh, it it would probably depend on which you're you're talking about. The which film and effects then... in the Beast of Bray Road specifically. Okay, so so our effects guys on on Bray Road Beast are the the opening with the window and all that. That's Santino Vitali. Um, Santino did these stop motion scenes in the flat Flatwoods monster movie with the UFOs and stuff. And then he also did these sequences. He's, he's kind of a, like a, a genius in my opinion, but um, he did the opening and closing scenes with the book. Um, and then he, uh, let me think, what else did he do? He did the beast of Jevedon, which is kind of like this moving storybook look. Oh, well he did the actual opening with, with the Zeus and all that. So oh, the cool. Greek mythology. Okay. Yeah, that's so the- any, anything that kind of looks like a moving illustration is going to be Santino. Um, and then for the, the found footage looking animation, that's Chris Scalf. Um, and then the actual werewolf, um, 
sort of live action recreations. Those were shot by uh, Zach Palmisano, Santino, and myself. Um, the costume is actually like a $6 werewolf mask that we bought on Amazon and then modded out. There's a, a body suit. Um, the eyes were... Uh, I hate to give this stuff away. I did this last night on another show, and then after the fact, I was like, now people are going to watch it, and they're just automatically going to be looking for this. But anyway, like the the eyes are like reflective bicycle tape, um, and so it's not it's not a CG effect, and it looks it it really works. Like I think it looks really fantastic. It, does. it looks really and, good. Practical effects yeah. always look better, like when you scale up to high def and stuff. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So so I was really happy with the way all that stuff came out i mean the werewolf costume on a whole cost about forty dollars so it, it and i think it i think it works like i you know like we did what we could with it and uh in the end i think it all it all came together pretty well so the you know the illustrators and the animators and and everything it, it are are kind of the highlight for me always I, i'm always like really excited to see that stuff start coming in and seth do you do your own editing and how much do you shoot versus what actually makes it to screen? Uh, I, I do all the editing. The only movie I didn't edit was Minerva monster, um, which is one of my big regrets actually. But um, I've, I've, I learned to edit on beast of white hall and um, that was the first thing I'd ever edited. And I've kind of been editing since and just learning it as I go. Um, there, there is a ton of, uh, cut footage um particularly with people like linda like it's it's always our central characters that we lose the most from so there's there's probably an hour and a half two hours of linda interview that's sitting in my office upstairs and um as far as actually on this one we were pretty tight on b-roll we we shot a lot but we were the the movies told in such a quick cut uh pace i think the typical uh, shot is on screen for maybe like two to f- three or four seconds. Um, so it, I needed more B-roll than normal. Um, so we actually, by the time it was all done, I was, I was running low on like location footage. Um, so, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot that gets cut. There's, um, you know, it, it's the, the best thing about the interviews for me is I get everything transcribed right away. Like that's the first thing I do. And that really helps me narrow in on, on what we're going to use and kind of how the story is going to be told. So there's a lot that's cut. Um, but I don't think, uh, typically that what is cut would inform sort of the direction of the central story. Okay. I know you've, um, you've done some live theatrical screenings of your movies, but streaming Mm -hmm. seems to be the way a lot of, uh, Indie filmmakers are making a living these days. What's working out best for you? Streaming or DVD sales or theater bookings or what's 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 keeping you afloat? Yeah, we don't do we don't really do any theater bookings anymore. We do locally. We will show usually once a year. We show a movie at this uh, theater here in Canton called the Canton Palace Theater, and it's my favorite place to see movies, uh, let alone to show my own because it's it's a massive theater, but it's also a very old uh, sort of ornate. Um, movie theater, so it's really gorgeous. But so we we do that once a year, but we really don't do many theatrical screenings uh, at all. And 
Um, most of that is because when we made Minerva Monster, we did a bunch. We sort of booked small theater showings all over the state, and we just we didn't make much money that way. You had to spend so much time promoting it and all that stuff, and it just yeah, it was a actually a lot more trouble than it was worth. Um, so for us, it's mostly streaming, um, especially Amazon and Amazon Prime. That's that's kind of where we found our, our audience in the last uh, two years is through Amazon. Um, the, the, the DVD sales are definitely um, a, a large part of our business model, but I don't think it's you know it's it's not anywhere near what streaming is and and especially you know Amazon Amazon's kind of the the king of all uh, of our streaming platforms. Secondly, it would probably be something like iTunes, uh, which has the Moss Manor Point Plus and Boggy Creek Monster and Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, and then we get into like the smaller you know platforms like Vimeo on Demand and uh, Viddy Space and stuff, and that's where. You know, we get a little bit of a, a kickback there, but it's not anything comparable to something like Amazon. Do you do better if, like, I mean, do you get more revenue off a DVD sale? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. I mean yeah. D- DVD, we, you know, we're taking 100% of the sale. But uh, Amazon is, and the way it works out is, like, our audience, like, the audience that supports us by the movies on DVD, um, the audience that finds us is finding us through Amazon. Nice. And, okay. and, and that's great. Like, and people, you know, like so many people tell us they watch our movies free on Amazon prime and then they end up buying them on DVD. So, you know, like it's, it's, um, I'm not, I'm not super picky about where people are going uh, to take in our, our films, I guess. So if it's, if it's free through Amazon prime, that's great. Just make sure they're telling their friends, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Well, again, I I have every one of the movies I've watched I've enjoyed. So there's only a couple I cool. haven't seen. So they've been great. And I, awesome. I watch Thanks, a lot of this stuff. So that's, you know, <laughs> it, I mean, it's neat because what we're also seeing is the evolution of a filmmaker. I mean, you know, so mm-hmm. in, in, in this space, you are doing fairly unique work, you know? Yeah. I mean, the 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 field is is wide open for other people to to make this type of content for some reason, they keep going back to making the movies or, or, or shows or whatever, where it's just like them running through the woods, trying to find something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon within itself that that is like, what's, what's happening now is that that is the only sort of approach to these subjects is to do that. Um, but that, it, that tends to be the way people make their, their films. So I don't know. We, we, we what we're doing is very simple, um, but I do think that we've gathered a team of guys that are are really good at what they do, and we're all kind of learning as we go together. And it's it's a big you know team sort of effort. Nice. Well, we've got just a, a few more questions, and uh, a few are from um, one of our Patreon supporters, um, is from Heather Moser. Um, so we joked about this a little bit earlier when you were talking about the satanic town of Elkhorn, mm-hmm. but um, uh, I'm wondering if you heard if you've had any uh, updates from the small towns that you have have been to and filmed your documentaries as to how your films might have somehow affected their town since the movie's release that it's mm-hmm. maybe brought more tourism or interest or a resurgence of the sightings. I th- I think. Um... The ones that jump out at me are are Flatwoods, 
and um, uh, probably Minerva. Those those are the two. Oh well, Whitehall, um, <laughs> uh, Whitehall. So so with uh, with Beast of Whitehall, we made Beast of Whitehall, and we premiered the movie in town. And the premiere was the largest single event that had ever happened in the the town of Whitehall. There was there's like 500 plus people that came out. It's not a very big town. So like any kind of large gathering like that was unheard of. Um, I was told by multiple people that that was the most people they'd ever seen gathered together for one thing, uh, in the entire town. So like, and because of that, they now do this Sasquatch festival in, in Whitehall and, and it was all kicked off. They show our movie, uh, which they've never, they, they, well, the first two years that they did it, they didn't bother to ask, but this year they did ask. So it's okay. But either way, they, they, they've really like, I think they've figured out, you know, that that's a great way to capitalize on, on their local legend. So they do that now. And then with Flatwoods, you know, that's always been sort of what, what Flatwoods, West Virginia was known for. But I, I do think our movie kicked up uh, a, a pretty large flurry of interest, um, especially when we premiered it. If we can do some sort of local premiere, that really seems to be when you get to witness it for yourself, like the impact that your your little film is having on the community. And in that case, uh, we did this little screening of the film at the local movie theater and it, it sold out and they actually had to close down the theater um, or the, the fire chief actually came down and closed, closed the doors and wouldn't let, let anyone else in. And then they ended up doing like encore showings the next day. And they just did another couple showings there a week ago or a couple weeks right. ago. But um, yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen our films play an impact. The biggest is Minerva um, because no one, and Heather knows this cause she's from that area. Um, the, you know, Minerva had kind of forgot about the Minerva monster. And when our movie came out, it, it kicked it back into the public eye. And what was interesting about that, you know, we were talking about the negative impact this type of thing can have on people. It was interesting. I talked to Howie Caton who, uh, initially had the encounters with the Minerva monster back in the seventies. And, you know, like the fallout from that for him and for his family was really negative. There was a lot of negative uh, ridicule that came their way from other kids in high school and, and people from around town and things like that. And uh, after our movie came out, I asked Howie once, like, you know, like, has there has there been any sort of fallout from the film coming out? And he said, everything that's happened has been really positive. I guess like one day he went into work and, and a bunch of the guys were wearing Minerva monster t-shirts and, uh, <laughs> you know, they did it as like a coordinated thing. Like a bunch of the guys thought it'd be fun to come, come and wearing their Minerva monster t-shirts. And he kind of like thought that was really kind of a fun, uh, experience. So like it was, it, that was, a, I guess, cool to see, you know, that situation in a way, um, be, uh, fixed somewhat for, for Howie. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, we've, we've seen that impact happen and, uh, you know, in a couple of cases they've, they've actually used our films as a springboard for, you know, some sort of local tourism. That's neat. I, I think I have a lot of theories about why these monster sightings sort of like burst out into like a community and spread. But, uh, I, it, it seems like there's, it, it gets, I need to write it up, <laughs> but it has, it involves yeah. like the way that storytelling spreads people's expectations and sort of primes people to look for the same kind of things. 
And then, you know, they might start to interpret things as being more mysterious or more in line with recent sightings and that sort of thing, which, which is, that's, that may be true, but, uh, when, when, um, when there's physical evidence that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, you know, that, that's what I find really compelling. Um, yeah. Uh, Heather actually had quite a few questions that were really great. We, we were kind of running out of time, but I do want to ask one more of her questions, which, and, you know, we, I, I, this is my fault because I, I basically reached out to the Patreons just a couple hours ago. So nobody's really had time to respond. But, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, do you foresee yourself, um, moving outside North America to like do sort of international small town stories? It, it, I, I'd love to. It would all come down to, whether we could get the money together or not, um, you know, and if the funding is there, obviously, I mean, it really is honest to goodness, independent filmmaking. Um, you've been doing these like out of your own pocket or figuring out no, your own we, funding? We, we do, we do a Kickstarter at the beginning of each year. Oh, you do? Actually. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Right around, right around beginning of February this year, it's Febru- going to be February 7th of 2019, but we've, yeah, that's actually how we have funded everything since 2015. And this year's will be our, I feel like this is our fifth Kickstarter. I might be. This is cool. So I, I didn't be, know this at all. This is fantastic. Okay. No. So yeah. So we we started asking. I think on on Minerva we asked for like five hundred dollars because we just wanted enough to print DVDs, and then we made sixty five hundred, and then the Boggy Creek Monster Kickstarter raised seventeen thousand, and then the next one raised twenty four thousand, and then last year raised thirty six. Wow. So like we're trying to, you know, like obviously. It, it, if if people are seeing an increase in quality, they're going to know they're not just throwing their money at people who are using it to go buy, you know, lavish McDonald's meals or something. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, well, I, I mentioned it. Expender. So you could probably yeah. go do like uh, Puerto Rico, Chupacabra kind of thing if you wanted to at some point. I mean, if we if we had the money, you know, like the one thing is like I, I say we make, you know, like we can raise whatever we raise, but inevitably that runs out because we're, you know, we're doing three projects a year, essentially. And actually in 2019, there's going to be four projects. There's a there's a project that we are producing that we haven't even announced yet um, that is it's 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 going to be a companion to the Midwest monsters of the Midwest trilogy, trilogy, which is Bray road beast terror in the skies and Momo. Um, there's going to be this companion project that's coming out, um, directed by a really talented filmmaker. Terror Um, in the skies. Are you doing like a Thunderbird thing? That's that's yeah. It's, it's like uh, winged cryptids in the state of Illinois. We we actually just shot that last weekend. That's where we were last week was in Illinois filming. So we, we were down on the, uh, in Alton, Illinois filming the Piazza, and uh, then we went up to Lawndale and shot the, you know, the location of the Lawndale sh- sighting. And, and then we're going to have a bunch of stuff in there about the Chicago Mothman as well. So we've got all kinds of stuff in that one. But uh, Momo is one I've been wanting to tell since we made Minerva. So I'm most excited about that right now. But yeah, we do we do a Kickstarter each year and that's what funds everything. And if if I can raise enough to go international at some point, I absolutely would. Cool. Plenty of stories overseas. <laughs> So, Seth, we've got one final question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? Um, I mean, my favorite monster is the Minerva monster. I just love that story. Um, Flat Flatwoods monster is probably up there, too. Those two are kind of like they, they're neck and neck. Um, my favorite story 
like crypto or paranormal story is the Mothman story as a whole. I just, I think there's so much to that and it's so fascinating, but, um, but yeah, my favorite is probably the Minerva monster. Interesting. Did you, uh, Great. you mentioned that you love, uh, hammer films mm-hmm. uh, and we're here in October and people will be looking for stuff to do for Halloween themed. Do you have any favorite hammer films you'd want to recommend to people? Yeah, the I mean the one I love the most is not one that people typically think of, but the Hound of the Baskervilles, the uh, the, the Peter Cushing, uh, <laughs> Christopher yeah, Lee, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, Christopher, I, I adore that movie, um, and I always have, and that's actually the one that I probably was most influenced by in terms of the opening and close of uh, of our Bray Road Beast movie, but um, I, I love Curse of of Dracula. That that was one that my mom actually showed me when I was really young. Cause she was kind of, uh, I think secretly in love with Christopher Lee. Um, so she showed me, she showed me that one when I was a kid and, and, uh, it always stuck with me because there's also the curse of the werewolf, which is pretty good too. Yeah, it is. It um, is. It is. That's, uh, uh, Oliver uh, Reed, yeah. Oliver Reed. Oh my God. That's it. Yeah. And I didn't have to yeah. Google it. <laughs> it was impressive. <laughs> that's a um, that's yeah. actually based on the werewolf of Paris. Uh, the, yeah. the the guy in Guy Indoor, um, yeah, novel, really good movie. Have you seen? Um, it is the Devil Rides Out. I haven't seen. That's the one that uh, I've been hearing a lot about. Yeah, I, that, that, I, I might have actually talked with you about that one at Cryptid Con. I think maybe. I talked that's, to you about that's that, that one. The, uh, the is Christopher Lee plays uh, the the hero. Uh, it's based yeah. on a Dennis Wheatley story. Really good. Yeah, really good. Yeah, I need to check that one out. My favorite, like my favorite Hammer movie that isn't a Hammer movie, is Sleepy Hollow. Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, just because it yeah. feels it so feel much like, like a one, Hammer yeah. movie. I haven't seen Crimson um, Peak, but I heard it's also kind of a very Hammery feel. I I haven't seen it yet either. Yeah. I need to. I like Del Toro, but yeah, mm-hmm. this is good stuff. But. <laughs> <laughs> Seth, Please go off on a tangent. I, it's, it's all monstery, I think. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was on I was on a show last week with with my friend Shannon Legro, and we spent like twenty minutes talking about the nineties. Uh, Great Expectations movie with Gwyneth Paltrow and Ethan Hawke. So at least we didn't go down that road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's. let's yeah, don't stop. Relatively <laughs> goop free. <Yeah. laughs> Seth, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. I, I want. Yeah, I'll, I'll put. You, a, yeah, we'll put a link to your newest release in the show notes, plus uh, your oeuvre. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Ooh. is there anything else uh, you want us to link out to? Small Town no, Monsters man, website. That's it. That's yeah, it. So. Well, yeah, great. Uh, Vimeo, uh, the movie's live and actually like 45 minutes from right now. That's outstanding. So, so I, yeah. this, this will be live on Wednesday. Uh, awesome. So that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming to join us. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And it was really great Thank to you. actually a talk a little longer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. Guys. Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to tell people that, that, that we didn't cover? That's like, you know, anything at all that you want to promote no, or talk about I mean, or, yeah, back, back the Kickstarters. Like that's, you know, that, that right now is kind of the lifeblood of small town monster. So if you're into getting cool t-shirts and statues and all kinds of stuff, we do all that stuff with the Kickstarter. Well, forgive so. me for being ignorant about that. And when, um, when you do your next Kickstarter, let me know and I'll, I'll talk about it on the show. Yes, sir. I will. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, thanks oh, a awesome. lot. Everybody. Thanks, Thank man. you again. Monster dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. 
You just heard an interview with filmmaker Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters about his latest movie, The Bray Road Beast. Links to the film and to his other works will be found in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Psybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. As always, thanks for listening.
Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. I'm on I'm on a, an iPad in my uh, in my family room because we have a baby that sleeps next door to my to my office now. So if if like one of my dogs did it just like or, it just crawled in or something or yeah he just showed up. <laughs> we, we woke up one day and there was like a baby in this room right happens. next to my office. Yeah, yeah. The stork brought it right. <laughs> yeah, we're not sure where he came from or anything. How old? Uh, 18 months, 17 months. Wow. 18 months. Uh, oh, congratulations. I've got a three-year-old. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you understand the plight. I do. I do. Yeah. I, I had twins. So yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> you got three, sir. So. Yeah. I've got three total, but, uh, yeah, the, the twins thing was, uh, you know, and this is, I have to say the kind of content our listeners really love to. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're going to, you're going to keep this in, right? Oh, this is gold. Yeah. This is gold right here. <laughs> yeah. People are, people are leaning in right now. They're like, okay, tell us more. He's going to tell us about having children. <laughs>